Today's passage comes from the book of James, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Now, this is a powerful text, and it's also kind of a hard one. Um, I, was, I was reading a commentator uh, on this passage earlier this week, and, and he was a, he's a British guy. And for a while, he was serving as a pastor, um, and he, <laughs> he said that he announced at the beginning of um, his pastor, that they were going to do a series on the book of James. And he said that after that, one of, uh, one of the people from the church came up to him with a very concerned look on his face, and he asked, are, are you going to preach the dodgy bit at the end? Uh, that, that's the, the British part. Um, I don't totally know what dodgy means, but I'm assuming like kind of confusing and, and all the things. Um, because while this is a, a powerful text, this is a good word for us, as is all of Scripture, it, this is hard for us to understand. And so we need to approach this passage with a great deal of care and a great deal of humility. And as a preface at the very beginning, prepare to be disappointed. Um, not in the text, but in me. Uh, because uh, as I was reading through this and preparing um, there are so many questions that come up from this passage that I just know I am not going to be able to answer. Um, part of what I do for sermon prep is I listen to other pastors and other sermons on the text I'm going to preach on. And there was uh, one pastor that I listened to a fair amount, and he preached five sermons on this passage. And even after five sermons, all of my questions weren't addressed. So I'm going to disappoint you. And I'm just trusting in Jesus's grace. That's going to be okay. Um, but that said, um, the, the end of this is not meant to be here. Uh, so if you have questions, if you have something that you want to talk about, if you have something you want to discuss, I would be so happy to get lunch or coffee with you, and we can talk through some of those things. We can wrestle with this passage together. Um, now, I am going to be gone next week. Um, <laughs> And I promise that that was not intentional. Like anytime I preach a hard text, I just get out of there. Uh, but I, I do have a calendar, and I'm assuming you do too, and I would be happy to meet with you. 
Uh, last bit of preface before we ask for God's help. Um, so I think when, when I approach text, I, I have a tendency to, to approach it as a thinking exercise first, and that can be a strength and a weakness. Um, and so it means that I uh, am looking at this and I have questions that I want answers to, and I do my best to uh, outline those things and lay those things out and, and present them clearly. But this passage deals largely with, with healing from sickness. And if you are battling illness, if you are battling sickness, if, if uh, someone that you love has been diagnosed with a disease, this is not an intellectual exercise. And so I, I just want to start off by saying, before we look at, at questions, before I try to give a feeble answer to any of those questions, we, we ought to start with the assurance that our God sees you in your struggles, our God sees you in your weakness, that your suffering is not pointless, that our God is, is there with you in the midst of it, that he is working in and through it. And even though we may not understand why we may be dealing with something, our God is not absent. He loves you and he cares for you. And our church loves you and cares for you. And it would be a privilege for, for me and our other elders to get to pray with and for you, to get to serve you tangibly in whatever way we can. So even though we are going to, there, there are three points to the sermon I'm about to preach. Um, you know, if you think you've already been talking for a while. Uh, there are points that I'm going to try to address things logically, hopefully, uh, clearly, cogently. Um, but the end isn't an intellectual exercise. The end is going to our God and giving him our needs. And we get to do that with and for each other. So all of that now said, let's, uh, let's go and ask our God for help as we engage with this passage. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, help, please. God, help us as we engage with this text. Help us as we try to understand. Lord, we ask that you'd give us the proper insight, but also the proper humility, because we are glimpsing at great mysteries, Lord, as we are glimpsing at your will and the way in which that is carried out here on this earth. So, Father, help us. Be there with us. But most importantly, God, we, we ask that as we ask questions of this text, as we try to engage with it thoughtfully, that we would see Jesus. Father, we love him, we love you, and we ask for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at its heart, what we see in verses, in chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, is a passage about prayer. Now, prayer is nearly a universal human practice. It's a practice that transcends age, gender, socioeconomic status, and culture. We see prayer inhabiting every civilization on the planet, and efforts to find people groups, even extremely isolated ones, without any form of religion or prayer have failed. And studies have shown that even adamantly non-religious people pray at times. One study found that nearly 30% of atheists admitted they prayed sometimes, and another found that 17% of non-theists pray regularly. 
Psychologists Bernard Spilka and Kevin Ladd, authors of perhaps the most extensive scientific psychological study of religion, say that prayer is critical to the way most people conduct their lives. And Philip and Carol Zelensky, or Zaleski, uh, scholars who have, been, who have taught at Harvard, Smith College, and Tufts University declare that wherever finds humans, one finds humans at prayer. That in times of persecution, prayer, prayer goes underground where it continues to wend its course into the depths of the soul. And so Tim Keller writes, prayer is one of the most common phenomena of human life. And our passage this morning teaches us some very important things about prayer. In our text, we see a call to pray. We learn, about, we learn some things about how we should pray, and we're told of the effectiveness of prayer. And so we're going to look this morning at each of those things in turn. And so we're going to start with the call to pray. And we see this in the first couple of verses in this text. Starting in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. So when are we supposed to pray? James lists a bunch of different circumstances that are meant to run the gamut of human experience. Are you hurting? Are you suffering? Are you experiencing joy? Do you have a need? Are things going well? What should you do in all of those circumstances? You should pray. No matter what it is you're facing, good or bad, there is a call to pray. And I think part of the reason why we see this call, no matter what we're facing, is that our God desires genuine relationship with us. Now, I have a, uh, I have a peculiar job. I know this about myself, and I know that I have a peculiar job because just about any time I meet someone new and I'm asked the inevitable question, what do you do for a living? And I say, I'm a pastor. Many people have no idea what to do with themselves. It's just like all sorts of fun faces and reactions, and, and oh, it, it's a good time. So I have a peculiar job, but I love my job. It, it, is, it is such a gift, and I love this church so I feel tremendously privileged to get to do what I do. And two of my favorite aspects of the job is that for a living, I get to read and teach the Bible. That is a huge gift. But the other main privilege, or at least what I see as the main privilege of my job, is that I get to be there with people in their highest moments and their lowest moments. Right? Weddings and funerals, graduation announcements, and then difficult diagnoses. I have the privilege of getting to be there with people in those moments. And part of what makes that so powerful is that it puts relationships on hyperdrive. Right? Because the reality is you don't really know someone. You don't know someone truly or fully until you've seen someone at their best and at their worst. Right, the good times and the bad times. If you've only seen someone on the, on the mountaintop, right, you've got a sense of a part of who they are, but you don't see the whole. Right, in the same way, if you only see someone in the pit, again, you can learn things about that person, but you're missing a huge aspect of their personhood. This is true of human relationships, but it is also true of our relationship with God. He desires genuine relationship, knowing and being known. And so, 
We are called, no matter what we are facing, in every circumstance, to go to God. So when are we supposed to pray to him? We are supposed to pray to him in all circumstances, in the good and the bad, the highs and the lows. Again, because God wants relationship. And prayer is a deeply relational act. A few weeks ago, our church had our VBS program, which which was a blast, and and I got to teach uh, little ones, which was a, a really fun, a really fun task. And uh, after, after one of our teaching sessions, um, I asked for a volunteer to pray. And I think there's a, there's a kid who shot his hand up, just super excited, very enthusiastically. I think he's probably b- b- between six or seven. You know, immediately, no hesitation, shoots his hand up. He, he wants to pray. So I called on him, and then he asked, what is prayer? It's like, okay. <laughs> And I think it's helpful to be asked a question like that from someone under 10 because it forces you to get to the root, to the very heart of something that is often very nuanced. Prayer is very nuanced, but at its very heart, and what I explained to this little guy, is that prayer is a conversation. Prayer is us talking to God. In prayer, we're invited to pour out our hearts to God. And there are different forms that prayer takes. Sometimes we pour out our hearts in praise, Sometimes we confess, sometimes we give thanks, sometimes we bring our needs before Him. Sometimes we use written prayers or prayers from the Bible. And this isn't inauthentic in the same way, you know, singing a love song to your significant other that you didn't write isn't inauthentic. Because sometimes we need help expressing ourselves, our needs, our desires, our love. But prayer is an opportunity for us to connect to God in relationship. And because it's an opportunity to connect to God in relationship, it is an opportunity to celebrate the goodness of the gospel. Why? Because we have no natural right to come before God. We have no natural right to enter into relationship with him. We've all sinned and fallen short. None of us, not a single person in this room, is who they should be. But God in his grace sent Jesus to be that person. Jesus lived perfectly. He loved perfectly. He had perfect faith. And yet he was willing to lay down his life for us, making it possible for us to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Anytime we pray, we are celebrating the goodness of God. We are celebrating his grace and his love. We are living out a wonderful gospel promise. And I think we see a a twofold gift in the gospel. One, we're freed from pretending. In the gospel, we don't have to pretend to be something that we're not. And so we're given this gift of freedom and radical honesty. Additionally, we're given the gift that our heart most desires, and that is relationship with God. We were made to connect to him. We were made for him, to do life with him, to enjoy him forever. And in the gospel, that is made possible because our sin is dealt with definitively. So the first thing that we see in this passage is a call to pray. And when should we do it? We should do it continually, 
As one commentator writes, there is no situation in life where prayer to God is not relevant or right. Our whole lives are to be lived in relation to God. So think for a minute. How is your prayer life? Are you reaching out to God, pouring out your heart to Him, asking Him for help, for guidance, for care, giving thanks, praising Him for His goodness in your life? Friends, He wants to hear from you. And every situation, every situation is a situation for prayer. So we're called to pray. And next, we're, we're, told about, we're told some of the ways in which we should go about praying. This isn't an exhaustive list of instructions, but we do, I think, see a couple of very important principles on the way to pray. Now, looking at verses 13 and 14, I think we see an important detail. There's a call to and an expectation of individual prayer. But there is also the expectation that we're going to be praying in community. Starting in verse 14, James begins addressing a protocol for praying over illnesses. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to call on the officers of a church. And notice that James doesn't say that if you're following Jesus and you become ill, go find a church, ask where their officers are at, and have them come over and, and pray over you. No, the expectation is that if you are faithfully following Jesus, you are going to be deeply embedded in Christian community, that you're going to be part of a church, and so you don't need to go find people. No, there are people that are engaged with your life, and so you know who to call on. Like, we live in a very individualistic culture, and as a result, we tend to approach our faith in a very individualistic way. You know, it's my private thing. But that is not a, a biblical way to approach our faith. And this tendency, I think, is detrimental. The 18th century uh, theologian and church leader, John Wesley, Presbyterians are allowed to quote Wesley on occasion, um, he wrote in his journal about a life-shaping encounter that he had with a, with a, quote, serious man. He described him as a serious man in his journal. And the serious man, when Wesley was, was just starting out in his ministry, gave him words to live by. He said this, Sir, you wish to serve God and go to heaven? Remember, you cannot serve him alone. You must therefore find companions or make them. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. And he is absolutely correct. We need one another in order to live the life that God is calling us to. Diedrich Bonhoeffer made this point even, well, I'm not going to compare the two, also made it very powerfully. He says this in his book, Life Together. A Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation, the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. We need to pray. We need to have consistent and intentional individual prayer lives. But we need to pray in community. We need to pray with and for each other. This needs to be a part of, of who we are as people who follow Jesus. The other thing that we're, that we're called to is praying in faith. I want us to read verses 14 and 15 together. 
Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. All right, I think this is what can feel like the dodgy bit. And there is a lot here. But one thing that I think we can easily and clearly point out from this text is that prayer needs to be made in faith. It's the prayer of faith that proves effective. Now, what is the prayer of faith? And this gets tricky because I think it's been turned into a lot of things that that the Bible doesn't describe. Many have claimed throughout the years that the prayer of faith means that it is a prayer that contains no doubts. It is a sincere, it is an assured prayer. There can't be any unbelief mixed up into it. It means that we pray confident that God is going to come through in the exact way that we are asking. Well, this is problematic, and it's problematic for a number of reasons. For one thing, if a person isn't healed, and if you've lived as a Christian for any length of time, it is likely that you have prayed for people and watched that prayer request not be answered in the way that you're asking for. If a person's not healed, well, what do we do? We, we tend to look for a reason, or we tend to look for the person who prayed with a lack of perfect faith. It causes us to turn on each other or turn on ourselves. I prayed sincerely. I didn't doubt. It must have been Jim. Jim is always doubting. We blame other people or we blame ourselves thinking that we didn't have the right faith or enough faith. And I think that leads to greater doubt and I think it leads to division. Another reason that this way of thinking is problematic is because it shifts the, fro- the focus from the object of our faith, namely God, to the strength of our faith. Who, according to verse 15, raises the sick person up? It's the Lord. God is the one who does the work. But if we're focused on mustering up perfect faith, then we're placing power too much, placing too much power in our own hands, our own sincerity and earnestness. And the Bible shows us examples of God granting the requests of those with weak faith and not granting the requests of those with strong faith. For example, there's a story in Mark 9 where a father has a child who needs healing, and he comes to Jesus and he pleads with him to heal his son. He says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus responds by saying, seemingly indignantly, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. To which the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. Which is basically a way of saying, I believe, kind of. I believe mostly. He's saying that he believes, but he is acknowledging the presence of doubt along with his belief. He wants to believe. And what is Jesus' response? Does he say, not, not good enough. Come back when you're serious. No, he has compassion on the man. He has compassion on his son, and he heals. This is a prayer of faith offered while acknowledging the presence of doubt. But it's still effective. Why? Not because of the strength of the faith, but because of the strength of the object of faith, the strength of Jesus, 
A strong God is able to do amazing things with very weak faith. Here, all the faith that was required was enough to pray. So we've got examples of God granting the requests of those with weak faith, but we also see him denying the requests of those with strong faith. For example, the Apostle Paul was a man of tremendous faith. He was persecuted for his faith. He had visions of Jesus. He had many prayers for healing that were answered. Even a prayer to raise someone from the dead, that was answered. And just a a side note, that person who died, died because he fell asleep during Paul's sermon. So for those of you sleepers out there, just a a side note to the side note, Uh, it it wasn't a judgment of God necessarily. He was, it was an all-night worship service and a young man was sleeping or sitting uh, in the third story window, which all of our windows are closed, so you should be okay. But don't, don't sleep. If anyone came up and said, I think I have more faith than the Apostle Paul, right, a man who had visions of Jesus, who wrote 13 books of the New Testament, that, that would be quite a claim. Paul had tremendous faith, but despite that, Paul's pleas for his own healing weren't granted. He referred to his sickness in 2 Corinthians as a thorn in his flesh, and we read in 2 Corinthians 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Well, all of this then leads to, a que- leads to questions about the effectiveness of prayer. So what is it that makes prayer effective? Because looking at verses 14 and 15, right, we have the expectation that, that prayer made in faith should be effective. So why is it that some of our prayers for healing aren't answered in the affirmative? Right, why weren't Paul's? Is it the bit about the oil? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that oil is the key here because there's nothing magical about it. It's not endowed with any special power. The elders are called to anoint the sick person with oil likely for, for two reasons. One, it may have had some medicinal purposes. For example, when we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, this is a story that, that Jesus told about a Jewish man who was traveling, who was caught up by robbers who beat him nearly to death, and he ended up being rescued by one of the most unlikely people imaginable at the time, a Samaritan, at a time when Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. And this was a way for Jesus to say, to expand on the concept of who is your neighbor, and his answer is everyone regardless of race, socioeconomic status, any of the things that we might put forward as as a way to divide, Jesus says, absolutely not. Everyone is your neighbor. So Jesus tells this parable about this, this Jewish man who was healed and was rescued by a Samaritan. And when the Samaritan helped this man on the road, we're told that he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
it kind of sounds, if you read that in our context, like the Samaritan's preparing the man to be eaten, um, as though he's like, it's a, it's a nice little marinade with oil and wine. Um, that's not what's happening. In reality, he is using medicine. Wine likely to sterilize an oil which had some wound healing properties. It's possible that this call to anoint with oil, that in this call to anoint with oil, there is a reminder not to neglect the medical arts, medical sciences. For this may be a means that God uses to enact healing. Katie's parents have a, have a my wife, Katie, um, her parents have a ministry that cares for missionaries. And so a few times throughout the year, they, uh, they go to Switzerland and missionaries from around the world converge on this spot in Switzerland and they are uh, cared for and, and receive um, healing in, in all sorts of different ways. And Katie and I have had the privilege of getting to serve, uh, serve with them in that ministry a number of times. And one of the more recent times that we were there, we, we interacted with a woman who was a medical missionary in a very remote part of the world. And uh, we got to have dinner with her, and she was recounting all kinds of just amazing stories of God intervening in miraculous ways to enact healing. And she prayed, and, and, and God acted over and over and over again. And this was a, a credible person who had a grounded and deep faith. And so we asked her the question, you know, why is it that you think that God is, is working in that way where you are? And, you know, we've prayed for people and we've seen some heal, but it's usually through medicine. It's usually through ordinary means. And her response was, it's because you have ordinary means. You have hospitals that you can go to. You have medical supplies that you have access to. And she said, you know, I'm out in the bush and it's either pray or die. For you, it's pray and God provides other, other avenues. When we pray for healing, we acknowledge that God doesn't need anything to accomplish his will, but he often chooses to use means to carry out his purposes. So faith can and should correspond with medical technology. But I think the main reason we see the call to anoint with oil is that oil is a symbol of the person being set apart, and, and, and it's a symbol of the filling of the Holy Spirit. We're calling on God by, by doing this to, to fill this person with the, the healing power of the, of, the, of the Holy Spirit. To anoint with oil in this context, in addition to... Uh, to, to, to having medicinal purposes. This is a nod, this is a request made in faith for God to come and to do a work. So there's nothing about the oil that makes the prayer more or less effective. So what is it that makes healing of, or, or any sort of prayer effective? And I think the answer at the end of the day is the will of God. Theologian Sinclair Ferguson writes this. He says, this then is the prayer of faith to ask God to accomplish what he has promised in his word. That promise is the only ground for our confidence in asking. Such confidence is not worked up from within our emotional life. Rather, it is given and supported by what God has said in Scripture. And he goes on to explain how this applies to the example of Elijah that we see in verses 17 and 18. There we read, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, 
and the earth bore its fruit. Now, a prayer for drought, which is the opposite of the prayer that we typically pray, that is a big, that is a bold prayer. But we're told that it wasn't answered because of any special qualifications that Elijah had. Because James explicitly points out that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Well, then why was this dramatic prayer answered? Because it was in line with the Word of God. It was recalling God's promises in Deuteronomy. If you do not obey the Lord, uh, the Lord your God, these curses will come upon you. The The Lord will strike you with scorching heat and drought. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. Elijah didn't go to God and say, look, God, here's my idea. The people are misbehaving, drought. Let's just, let's just kill their crops. No, instead he prayed that God would bring about something that he had already promised to do. And I think parents have some understanding of what this is like. Uh, there have been a number of times when uh, one of my kids will come to me and say, can I do this? And my initial response is, no. And then they will say, but you said or you promised, and then I remember, I did. And I feel like I have to do that. And Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? When we ask in line with God's word and his will. So we can and should ask God for physical healing with confidence in his power to make that happen. But all the while, we should make our, requ- our requests in line with Jesus' prayer, not my will, but yours be done. Recognizing that God may be at work doing something through sickness, that he can even use death in ways that we just can't see. God can provide physical healing, but he doesn't promise to in every circumstance. But he will always provide spiritual healing namely the forgiveness of sins. This prayer we can make with absolute assurance for two reasons that we see pointed out in this text. For one, it's called out explicitly in verses 15 and 16. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This prayer for forgiveness with the assurance that it will be answered is in line with what God has revealed elsewhere in his word. For example, in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Additionally, looking closer at verse 16, we read this, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Well, who is the only person that can be considered truly righteous? We're in church, so the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the only person that that can be considered truly righteous. And what is it that Jesus is doing right now? Well, according to Romans 8.34, that was supposed to be on there in a minute, a minute ago. According to Romans 8.34, Jesus is at work before the throne of God, interceding for us. He is praying for us. 
He is pleading our cause, pointing to his work, his finished, perfect work on our behalf for our justification. This is a prayer that will be answered. And that prayer, the answer to that prayer, makes, it, makes everything else matter far less. We have the assurance that everything in the end is going to be okay. So friends, we should pray. We should pray with boldness, knowing that our God is good and he longs to give good gifts to his children. Nothing is too hard. So if you're battling something, if, if you have a troubling diagnosis, if someone close to you is hurting, is suffering, is sick, there is hope. There always is. We can cling to hope while ultimately submitting to the will of God. But beyond that, friends, we have the assurance, the absolute, utter assurance that we are going to be okay. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Despite what we're going through, God has set his love on you, and there is nothing that can take that away. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that your spirit would fill us, Lord. That he would give us what we need in order to cry out to you. Lord, we ask for the gift of faith. We ask for boldness in prayer. We ask that you would help us to trust that you are good, that you are powerful, that you can and you want to give us good things. Because God, all of those truths are confirmed by your word. And Lord, when you don't answer our prayers in the way that we, that we want, in the ways that we hope, we pray that you'd give us what we need to trust in you in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us eternal perspectives. Help us to know that in the end, everything is going to be okay. Because the biggest ailment that all of us face is the ailment of sin. And that has been dealt with definitively in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for him. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for his ongoing work, interceding for pleading for us before your throne. Lord, when we doubt, when we despair, when we are discouraged by our own sin, when we're discouraged by our own weakness, we ask that you would help us to know that Jesus is crying out on our behalf. We thank you for him. We pray that you'd help us to cling to him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.